Hi, we're Katie, Jessica, and Shannon, and this is Boy Problems Podcast, a community focused on supporting families navigating substance use disorder. We hope sharing our stories, introducing you to experts, and answering all the questions you have no one else to ask will help you better navigate your story. Through our partners' recoveries, we found each other and formed our own squad, one we know is so valuable to how we manage this disease in our relationships. So we started bringing a microphone to our hangouts to extend our conversations to others just like us. When you're here, you're not alone. Hi, everyone. Uh, We are excited to introduce you to our guest today, Julia Warren. Um, You may know her from her Instagram account, um, Julia Envisions. This is how I first met her. I think we were both tagged in the same Instagram story from um, another account. And so obviously I like, clicked on your page and started looking through it. And I was just really struck by the way you share and your writing. I think it's really beautiful and vulnerable. Um, so we started messaging and um, invited you on the podcast. And I'm so glad to have you here and learn more um, about your story from you. Um, so oh, just a couple of quick things for those who don't know Julia yet. Uh, She lost her husband to an accidental overdose in September, 2021. And she's been speaking out about her grief to help soften the stigma and support others um, on a similar path, which is, you know, something that we are obviously very supportive of and think is super necessary. And she's also a mom of two young boys, a recovery advocate, a yoga teacher, and a meditation facilitator. Um, And we'll probably learn a lot more as we get going. So Julia, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity just to come on and share my story and my why. I just, I feel really honored. And yes, I agree. I think it was a combined story we were tagged in and I felt very similar coming across y'all space and what you're doing, I think is just absolutely necessary and needed. So thank you for allowing me this opportunity. Awesome. All right. Well, I guess uh, maybe we can just start by hearing a little bit from you on your background and experience with addiction and any other mental health things that you want to share with us. Absolutely. So I myself entered into the world of recovery and back in April of 2010, April 1st to be exact. So my story, um, gosh, that could probably take this whole entire time up to tell you, but I will try to summarize it as easily as possible. Um, I was raised in the Midwest by two great, wonderful parents, very supportive, but um, addiction and alcoholism and honestly, mental health struggles were on both sides of the family. And unfortunately, both me and my older brother fell victim to substance abuse. Um, For me, you know, it started at a young age of just not feeling comfortable in my skin, not feeling like I really fit in, in a lot of places. And so I became the girl who drank at the party, who overdid it a little too much and who just wanted to be seen. Um, I dealt with a lot of anxiety surrounding just who I was. I struggled with finding my footing. I really, at a young age, felt like I wasn't seen. Um, 
And so when I drank and when I used drugs, I was seen and I was noticed and people liked me and I was fun and I was funny. And, you know, back in high school, I used to think it was more normal, quote unquote, normal, you know, this is what everybody does, but it's not normal when you blackout drink and your friends are having to help you home or, once you hit college, you're getting, I got a DUI my first week in college. You know, you think that would have maybe been a wake up to me that like, Hey, like most people don't get a DUI when they're freshly in college their first week, but it progressed. And, um, like I mentioned, my older brother struggled as well. And so I kind of followed down the same path as him and it quickly shifted to opiate use. Um, And that's when things really got dark. And I was in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. I was in outpatient treatment centers. And it wasn't until, yeah, March of 2010 that my family intervened and said, listen, like, we were so afraid you're going to die. We can't do this anymore. And what's so interesting about that is I remember feeling like this deep sense of relief. Like I had never gone to like a long inpatient treatment center. And this was like, you're leaving Kansas and you're going to California and you're not coming back. Like it was this big, we really, this is our last push to help you. And even though I fought it on the outside, it was internally, I was like, Oh, thank God. Like finally, maybe this can be it. Um, so I entered treatment. It was a 90 day women's facility that was amazing. Changed my life, entered sober living, lived in sober living until I had 10 months sober And then I ended up working for the treatment center and just really bonding and giving back. I mean, was heavily involved in both AA and in Al-Anon, worked with these women, helped them, and then just continued on my path. So that's my story with recovery. And actually, that's how I met Doug as well, which I'm sure we will get into also. Yeah, I I was curious at what point in that you met, met Doug. Yeah. So I actually met Doug. So it would have been right before I got a year. No, I'm sorry. Right before two years. So it was at the end of 2011. And we actually met because two of our dear friends, he was living in a sober living at the time and his best friend was dating my best friend. And it was something that was like an instant connection, but actually fate took us apart for about a year and a half after that. We stayed friends. We'd see each other here and there, but we're dating other people And it wasn't until the summer of 2013 that things aligned and those same friends brought us back together, kind of felt determined to bring us together. And that's where all of that started. And um, yeah, he was actually working in a treatment facility as well. His sobriety date was um, February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2011. And so he was short behind me a little bit, about a year behind me in our journey. And yeah. One of the coolest things about doing this, fighting like for my thoughts, is that no matter how many different stories we hear, we like there are just so many common threads. And as we're going through this, either as the person who um, is suffering from substance abuse, or in your case, you have both experiences, but there are just so many like it feels so you feel so alone and it feels so like unique, but it truly isn't. And so it's just really cool. That was like the thing that stuck out as you were talking, like. I don't know how many times we've heard like similar things, either from our own spouses or other people that we've talked to, like either the podcast or just recovery in general. So yeah, I just think that that's such a big thing to kind of acknowledge sometimes is that 
we all have our own unique way, but it, at the heart of it is the same thing. It's like a suffering. You were saying like, you just didn't feel comfortable. My husband said that all of the time. And it's just so interesting how, you know, <laughs> it feels so isolating and so alone, yet there are so many other people going through exactly the same thing to get to exactly the same kind of self-medication. So that was what I was thinking. I don't have a question. So that's what I'm asking. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting about that is even working, you know, in the treatment field for so long, you're so right in saying that because it was, we all had this deep, you know, I hate to call it wounding, but that's what it was, this deep Mm -hmm. wound that we were trying so hard to just nurture in some way or support in some way. And yeah, it just, even if our lives were vastly different, we could all align and relate to that one little tidbit of this hurt that we couldn't quite find the support elsewhere. And so we turned to what we thought would bring that to us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, Uh, um, oh, we're, go ahead. No, go, you go. I was just going to say, I think it's cool. You said, you know, you and Doug first met and then you kind of were doing your own thing, but you were brought back together and it seems like it was really meant to be. Um, I think initially before we started talking, I was wondering like, oh, at what point did the addiction happen? Was that something Julia was aware of? Um, sounds like obviously you knew of that from the beginning. Um, so I'm just curious then, because you've been in recovery now for a long time mm-hmm. and how did that look for Doug? Like, were you, did you guys stay on similar paths or was it more up and down for him? So I, all right, let me think how I want to word this. So when, when I met Doug, I knew that the trauma he suffered in his childhood was something that he carried very deeply And I knew it was something that I didn't quite relate to or understand. And so we always had this dialogue that I never really liked. I actually took a lot of offense to that. He would constantly say, you're just not a real addict, Julia. You just don't understand. And it used to really, like, it was something we would have, I mean, we would fight about, like, how do you compare one person's, you know, addiction to another, like it, it, you know, but he always carried this deep pain surrounding that. And so it was something that I always worried about. So our story, so we met in Southern California and then I actually moved to Arizona to work for my brother who actually got, I kind of left that part out. I got sober. So April 1st, 2010, they intervened on my brother, April 23rd of 2010 He's been clean ever since as well. So my parents always joked, they were like, congratulations, you both went to college. Here you go, (laughs) like life college, you know, life school. And he is doing amazing, thriving, still has his recovery as well. That's actually where we are right now is in Arizona visiting family. Yeah. Um, So we moved, I moved to Arizona to work for my brother and Doug eventually moved out here as well to finish school. And then when we left that little nest egg of recovery in Southern California, things really started to change. You know, once you establish that like really deep rooted group of people that you got early recovery with who have stood by your side, 
it's scary. And so he went to meetings here for a while, but never really found his community. And then when he finished school, we moved to Texas and we moved to Houston actually. And then when we moved to Houston, we both, same type of thing, really struggled to like move into the recovery community in Houston. It was so different than what we were used to in California. So we just, when any good addict does, we stopped going to meetings and we were like, we've got this, you know, it's been long enough. We're good. Um, so I, then we got engaged at the end of 2014. And then I found out actually in March of 15, I was pregnant with my oldest. And so we, you know, life just really took off and we were planning a wedding and I was having a baby and, you know, we just, I think a lot of people in recovery do this. You think, okay, I've been sober for X amount of time. I've been clean for X amount of time. Like I'm good. I, like, why would I go back? And shortly after um, my oldest was born, um, Doug decided, I think I can drink. And I was like, okay, like, you know, alcohol was never my issue. Using drugs intravenously was my issue, you know, was the way he justified it. And so, you know, I agreed. I'm like, you know what, maybe we can. So we decided, great, we can each have a drink. We'll see how we do. Okay. I realized really early on alcohol, just, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Right. So I put it aside. Well, unfortunately, Doug, that became his new vice, you know, it'd be a beer here and there, you know, maybe he would have a glass of wine with dinner. And it was something that I, you know, looking back on, like you have so many regrets, right? Like, why didn't I push this? And, and the same type of thing and the same, like, you know, alcoholic brain, it was, we have this pact. If it ever goes too far, the other will say, you need to go back to meetings. Well, when it eventually got too far, Doug was not willing to go back to meetings. And that's when I started seeking out Al-Anon again for myself was like, okay, I need more support because I don't know how to manage this. And so that would have been 2016, basically 2017. Um, and then it started to steamroll. Um, he discovered some substances. He started using something called Kratom. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It's essentially a synthetic opiate that you can buy at like um, smoke shops. And he started utilizing that, which then in turn really affected his mental load and work really took off. Things really took off. <clears throat> and then he went to seek out a doctor for some help because he realized like I'm having some issues. Um, and she unfortunately prescribed him both Adderall and Xanax. What a great mix. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And so from there, it just kept progressing. And so that was right around when the pandemic hit was in 2020 was when he was, um, over-medicated. And then, as you all know, there was no meetings. He realized like I've dug myself into a hole. I need help. I want the physical help and, um, yeah, things really progressed from there. Yeah. So something, so Something that we've talked about, you know, when we were going to in-person groups and things like that, that was such a huge fear of getting connected with a doctor, my husband, uh, getting connected with a doctor who understood. Um, I got, um, you know, I even had to confront my own doctor who we, you know, both same, 
see the same PCP. And he was like, no, I would never do that. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, listen, man, I'm sitting in these rooms and it happens. So don't act so nonchalant about it because it does happen. And if you prescribe him a bottle of pills, it's like, it will affect my family. It will just go nowhere good. And so you probably were well aware that probably him getting those pills was no good. And so what were your thoughts through that? Because obviously you saw the bottles or realized what was happening. You know, at first he hid it from me, you know, he went, of course he went to the doctor and he was like, Oh, she just prescribed me an antidepressant. And I was like, great, wonderful. Like maybe that can help. And then it wasn't until later when he started to lose weight at like an increasingly fast rate. And he, I mean, he hit it, he kept it in his work truck that I finally approached him. I'm like, listen, what's going on? And he finally admitted, he was like, I was struggling to focus at work and she prescribed me Adderall and Xanax. And I had a pretty, I will not lie, a pretty negative reaction because it, it, you know, I was already watching this like slow decline that made me very uncomfortable. And by this point we'd had our second child because there was bouts of sobriety. There would be times that he realized like, okay, I'm not going to drink, but he was a total dry drunk. You know, he was irritated, agitated, frustrated. And so by this point, you know, I have a baby. He was born in October of 19 and this all started in 2020. So I'm so focused on nursing a baby, not sleeping all the things. And when I confronted him about it, of course, it was that total gaslighting. Well, I knew it would be too much for you to handle. I didn't want to stress you out. you already have so much on the plate with the kids. Um, and I just remember thinking like, why do you think you can pull this over my head? You know, like everything you're saying, I've said to somebody in my life. Um, and it caused a really huge rift in between us. And that was when things really started to accelerate um, because he felt intense shame and guilt um, for lying, you know, as they do and hiding it for so long. But once I finally figured it out, I was like, listen, I'm not comfortable with you taking these medications and you need to talk to your doctor about them because they're obviously having an effect on your physical health and your mental health as well, um, which he did. And he did stop taking them, which then of course stopped taking something like that cold Turkey. There was a lot of up and down with that. Um, but then eventually, I mean, we'll get to that. He went to treatment and same type of thing. They over-medicated him and it just was not, it was not good. Oh, dang. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, your two like kids throughout this and I'm curious, like, how, how, how parenting them through all those ups and downs, um, especially like the older one, because you said he was born in 2015 or 2016. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then by this time he was like four. So a lot, a lot was happening over those like early years. I'm just curious, like what, how you handled that. And like, if he realized what was happening or how you answered questions that he might have about dad. Um, so, so Noah was four going on five when all of this really started to unfold. And he had a very close relationship with Doug. So the way that a lot of this occurred was Doug would just make himself not present, which was really hard. The silver lining somewhat that I guess you could say was that his job was one that he traveled a lot. He was gone a lot anyways. 
And so my oldest didn't really quite pick up that much on, oh, dad's working more or he's gone before I go to bed at night and I don't really see him in the morning. But those moments that he was home on the weekend, it was very much so why is dad not waking up and making me pancakes like he used to? Why is daddy so frustrated with us? Why is he so grumpy? Why doesn't he want to come and go for a walk with us? And there was a lot of, you know, of course, in that moment, like I was in such survival mode. A lot of it was like, oh, dad's just tired. You know, it was this like quick dad's just tired. But then when things in 2021, when things really got just out of control, I finally got more honest with him. And I was like, listen, your dad is sick. He's just not feeling well. He's navigating a lot. He's trying to take different medicines to make him feel better. And he's, my oldest is very smart. And he was like, well, is this because daddy drinks? Because he would see him drink. That was the only thing that he would ever see him do. And I was like, yeah, you know, Noah, like, yes, because dad drinks, sometimes it just doesn't make him feel good. Um, But honestly, I was in such survival protection mode that often I would just like fend those questions. Like, I don't know, Noah, I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you, you know? And um, looking back, I wish I would have done some things different, but since Doug's death, that has completely changed. And we can talk about that as well with the way that we communicate and the understanding that he has now and um, how we've navigated that too. Yeah. And that is something I'm, I'm curious just about your whole healing process and how yoga has been a part of it and how you navigate it with your, your kids. Um, but I guess before we get to that, like the healing, we have to get to the, um, unfortunate event that happened. So yeah, open to sharing anything. I am. And I mean, you guys, to your discretion, I mean, I don't know how comfortable, I mean, you can share whatever, but I am an open book with this because I feel like these are the really, I mean, just excuse my mouth, hard fucking conversations to have, but this is the harsh reality that so many of us are navigating. And, you know, Doug, like I said, in 2020, things really started to kind of speed roll out of control and this major snowball effect where I realized, and he realized like, oh shit, like I've really started to like dig myself into a hole issues at work, obviously issues at home. He got in a wreck in his work truck, you know, and had to fabricate this whole lie about like, oh, some other car sideswiped me, you know, like the, everything started to crumble. And when that happened, you could just tell, I'm sure y'all have seen this where it's just like the life has left their eyes and they're just, they don't know what to do. And so in March of, no, I'm sorry. It would have been May of 21. We were set to do some family pictures and he just didn't show up. And he was on the guys that I'm stuck at work. I can't come. And when we were done, I was driving home. He's like, Hey, can you call me? Make sure you're not on speakerphone. I don't want the boys to hear. And the night prior, he had been up all night saying, I just think I'm having a heart attack. And he was having a panic attack. It was very evident that he was having this panic attack. I think it was from withdrawal. Like there was a lot going on. And so when I called him, he said, listen, I'm not coming home. I'm going to detox. I know if I don't go to detox, I'm going to die. And I said, great, 
what do you need from me to do? And he was like, I'm not sure yet. Obviously I have nothing, but like, I'm going to this detox center. And I was like, okay, you know, I support you. I love you. I'm heading home with the kids. I can find somebody to come watch the kids. You just tell me what you need. Well, unfortunately he did not go directly to the detox. He ended up coming home. And then of course, you know, since he was at home, he's like, it's okay. I can sleep on it. You know, like we can go tomorrow. Like there's too many things I have to let work know. I've got to manage this. And, you know, by this point, like I said, I had been going to Al-Anon. And so I was very hands-off. I'm like, listen, I'm here to support you if you need me to support you, but I can't make you go, you know, like I really hope you do. And I love you. And I hope you go. Um, and actually my kids and I were set to go out of town to visit my grandmother the next day. And so he was like, I'd like you to still go on the trip. I will get myself there. So I left on good faith and hopes, you know, that, okay, he's going to go. And he did. Um, but that's not without, you know, my kids and I left and he for sure, um, had some fun before we left. Um, I came back to a house, you know, with alcohol bottles hidden all over it. And just, he really went for it before he went, but he went and, um, he chose to stay for 30 days and, you know, inpatient, that was kind of all his work could offer him. And he came home and it was really hard for me because, you know, we're so hopeful. And I was so hopeful that like, this is it. Like he's going to grasp it again. And this is going to be a foundation and then he can keep going. But my husband who came home was filled with more resentment, more discomfort. He just wasn't comfortable in his skin. And he decided to take some more time off work and was trying to go to meetings. And I mean, we don't have to get into every single detail, but about two weeks, maybe even a week and a half after he got out of a treatment, we went to visit his family. And unfortunately, when all of us were sleeping, he drank too much, found some pills, took those and just, you know, relapsed. We came back home, made it about another two weeks, relapsed again. And it was just this steamroll effect. And at the beginning, so that would have been the beginning of July at the beginning of August, I asked him to go to a sober living because he was up. Um, I mean, just using, just to put it bluntly, using cocaine and meth in our house with our children. And I was like, this is just not safe. You just, you can't be here. Like, and I love you so much. And obviously you need more accountability. You need more safety. Like you've got to go somewhere else. And he agreed and he went. Um, so he lived in the sober living for gosh, almost 10 days, but then he came home to visit us all on my birthday, August 17th. And he came home and it turned out he had COVID. So we all got sick. (laughs) Oh gosh. It was great. Um, And we all, I mean, he quarantined at home with us. I got sick. The kids got sick. And let me tell y'all, I was filled with resentment. I write about that a lot and share about that a lot. I was not the nicest person. Um, I was angry. I was bitter. I was frustrated that like, why can't you just get your shit together? Like you've got these kids, you've got somebody who understands this so deeply, who is willing to support you you know, it was, it was really hard for me. Um, and he left our house on August 28th saying, or no, I'm sorry, the 29th saying he was going back to work and, or back to the sober living. He was meant to start work the next day. And, um, unfortunately he chose not to go back to the sober living. He texted me the whole next day. I thought he did, you know, I'm at work, everything's going well. 
And the last thing my husband ever said to me was, I'm done with my job for the day. I'm so excited to sleep in my tiny bed, like making a joke about having to go back to the sober living. Yeah. And I, um, I never heard from him again. And it took two days for us to find him. He was in a hotel. Um, he had cocaine. He had meth. He had two different types of antidepressants. He had Xanax. He had everything. And unfortunately, heroin, which was his drug of choice for years that he hadn't used until, uh, to my knowing, you know, until that moment. And um, it took one time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so the trauma of walking through that, you know, it literally felt like a movie, you know, police showing up at your house, um, making phone calls, hitting the ground running. And it lives, I mean, it will live in us forever, but you know, the harsh reality was he just, like they always say, just one more time. And all I think is, you know, he laid in bed for two weeks, making a plan of what I'm going to go do next. And he knew, you know, he knew when I look back at our final, when he left, you know, I knew inherently when I look back, like he's not okay, but how could I make him stay? You know? Right. So And it's always, you know, easier to have those realizations when you're like looking back. I always tried whenever I'm feeling hard on myself, I try to remember like you do the best you can with the information that you have at the time. And then you have to think of all the like stress and other factors that are playing into the way you like react or handle things. It's just so hard. So I can't imagine what you were dealing with at that time. And just like the two days that you said it took to find him, my husband, um, sort of similar situation was like in a recovery house, but not, and got kicked out, not, not, you know, not staying sober, got kicked out and was missing for a day and a half or so. And I know that feeling of like trying to tell police, like police officers, like you have to look for someone that's just in a car like that the fact and then looking back on saying that like it's crazy it's it's such a terrible thing to live through and to like know that that something really awful probably happened in our case he was handcuffed to a hospital bed because he did almost die in a car um um but yeah that that waiting that not knowing but knowing it's probably bad feeling I can't but that's, that's, that's really tough. It's really, really tough. Yeah. And I, I think back on that and you talk about like being in survival mode. It was just like, I knew, I knew when, whenever we found Doug, that he was no longer going to be here. And gosh, my eyes well up saying that it's this inherent thing. You know, you, you go through so much with a person and you're so connected to them. And that was the hardest part was like you said, telling the police, listen, like, I don't think he's going to be okay, Mm -hmm. but obviously we need to figure out where he is. Excuse me. And yeah, it's such a surreal experience, you know, time speeds up and it slows down all at the same time. And I don't think I will ever forget that my whole life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And those traumatic moments, I feel like sometimes it's like you almost like disassociate and it's like, you're like just watching everything happen because it's like, how can this be real that I'm actually 
physically like going through it. So, yeah. One of my friends always reflects on that because she came over to sit with me and the kids, you know, while we're in this like waiting and she was like, let's just get out, let's go eat Thai food. And to this day, she was like, why the fuck did I take you to eat Thai food? She was like, did I really think that was going to make you feel better? And then we went and got ice cream and she's like, here, your husband's dead. And we're like, we're unaware, but I'm trying to make you feel better. And I was like, listen, you distracted me though. Like that was what I needed. But like you said, it's so surreal. I remember just being like, what are we doing? Like what, what is going on? But we walked through it, you know, and we're still walking through it. (laughs) It does bring up, um, I'm glad you had that friend there with you. I'm, I'm curious, like what kind of support were you getting you know, from friends and family, like during this time and how many people knew what was going on or maybe nobody had any idea. Yeah. Looking back at that, that's been another very, um, kind of sore subject. My family knew simply because, I mean, I needed support and I needed to share with people who understood. Um, Doug's family had an idea, but they didn't know it was that bad because he didn't want them to know. And it was one of those things where I'm not sure if you guys have navigated this, maybe I'm sure where it was, you know, you don't tell my parents, my business, that's my business. And I said, you're right. It's not my business to call your mom and tell her what's going on, which has been very interesting to navigate now that he is gone, you know, there's been a lot of questioning of why I wouldn't ask for more support, but I was an Al-Anon. So I had a lot of support through people in Al-Anon and I did have a close knit group of friends. Obviously I still have a ton of friends in recovery. Um, a few, especially that have like walked by my side through everything. They were women I got sober with all those years ago. And close people, there was very few close people to us that knew, but most did not because there was a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of shame, you know, that comes up. And it's just, I like to say, I'm sure you've seen me write this before, you know, it's, I don't feel it's anybody's fault, except it's just a lack of education and a misunderstanding, you know? Um, and that's unfortunate, but there was a lot of people who, pushed us away from their life as soon as they knew any little information. And so I kept it pretty close to me there at the end when things got really rough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm interested. Um, obviously that's ter- a terrible thing to live through and you have two young kids. Um, what do you do next? Like, how do you start down this journey? How do, how do you get to this place of being able to talk about it with us tonight? Like what, what was that journey like for you? So I know you mentioned you were curious about yoga and those things as well. So I discovered the practice of yoga in early recovery, and it was definitely a lifeline for me for so many years. And I know a lot of times people look at yoga simply as, oh, this workout or this practice of moving your body in a certain way, which yes, it can be. But my personal definition of yoga and what I like to encourage people to look at is it's simply a practice of quieting your mind, of allowing yourself to embody your emotions or to sit with anything you're navigating. It's simply the way you treat people or the way you show up or the way you keep yourself accountable. And so staying rooted 
And that has been substantial for me. So, you know, obviously at first there was, I mean, such deep trauma. I mean, I, you talk about disassociation. I, I did not parent my kids. Thank goodness family was around. I sat in a chair like this. I kid you not for probably two, three weeks. Like I barely slept. I barely ate. I picked up the phone if I could handle it and just tried to wrap my brain around the fact that my husband was no longer here. And then navigating with my kid, that with my kids was really, um, was really difficult. You know, um, my oldest, like I said, he's very aware. And actually the day Doug, we got the news that Doug had died. I was putting him to bed and, you know, I'm talking to man. I'm like, you can sleep with me. And my mom was there. She was going to sleep in the bed with us. And he looks at me and he goes, you know, mommy, if you wouldn't have told dad to go to that sober living, he wouldn't have died. Oh. And I, yeah. <laughs> and I looked at him and I remember it'll make me cry. Now I said, buddy, I hear you. And I understand why you would think that. I said, but daddy wasn't at his sober living when he died. And I don't think the choices that daddy made were based off of me asking him to go there. And that right there made me realize like, ah, this is going to be a lot of work. Um, and, and heartbreaking. So, yes. oh, yeah. So, so tough. Yeah. So we really quickly, so he passed away in, you know, beginning of September, we, um, October, I mean, immediately got him into therapy, immediately got myself into therapy. And it's just been a lot of open, honest dialogue. Um, I was really scared to tell him the truth because these are some big words and he was, he turned six right after it happened, you know, excuse me, he turned six and my youngest turned two right after Doug died. And so I was navigating a lot and it was basically, he kept asking, you know, I told him originally, like, you know, daddy's heart stopped beating. The paramedics did all that they could. And then it was, well, why? Like, is my heart going to stop beating? And then you're like, okay, like, no, you know, what do you say? And that's what I struggled with. And that's why I put us in therapy right away. And his therapist encouraged me if he's asking the questions, he's ready for the answer. And so I chose to use the dialogue. Um, you know, daddy had something called substance abuse disorder. When people struggle with substance abuse, it's when they use, you know, when you'd see your daddy drink and you would see him drink and drink and drink. Basically, you know, they find a substance that they can't control the amount that they may ingest. They may want to stop. They may feel in their hearts. They want to stop, but for some reason they just can't. And he's still like, I mean, y'all, this kid would be like, that doesn't make sense. Can you explain it more? And so literally I had to get down to detail and say, okay, listen, your daddy, he struggled using, there's these things called drugs. What's a drug. And then you're ex trying to explain that. And it was really hard. And I laugh because it's like, it was so interesting because my child the whole time was like shaking and moving his body. And so it was really beautiful because it was like, he was trying to regulate his nervous system while he got all this deep information. And when we were done and I explained it to him, he had two questions. He said, one was, why would daddy do that? And I said, baby, I do not have that answer for you. And I'm sorry, I will never have that answer for you. And then the second was great. Can I go play on my iPad? <laughs> And it was just such a testament to these children. Like I get so emotional 
they just need honesty and they just need safety and they just need a parent who's going to tell them the truth, you know? And even though it's so hard, it has knitted us even closer together. And he is the most amazing, empathetic, strong child there is. And I, I of course have so much fear that this trauma and, and the predisposition that my kids have will lead them down the same path. But I'm a, such a firm believer in me being honest and vulnerable and upfront with them will help them and potentially save them from walking down the same path, you know? Yeah. That's what I kept thinking was yeah, these hard conversations that you've had and like navigating the feelings, like it has to be terrible in the moment, but I'm thinking of like how that sets you guys up for the future. And, you know, there's going to be other conversations that have to happen as your kids grow up and you've already established sort of this like safe and honest environment. And I, I would just have to think that that will only be like beneficial to you all later on. I agree, you know, and we talk, like I said, since I'm such a firm believer, and I mean, that's what I teach women in my containers is about embodying these emotions and allowing ourselves to feel these emotions and finding ways that like, I am not a perfect parent. My nervous system gets unregulated and how I can come back from that and apologizing to my kids and working through these impossible things that I never in a million years imagined that I would navigate And so that practice of yoga, whether it's just simply being kind to another human being or simply showing up for somebody else or being kind to myself has been life-saving for me the past 18 months. Well, and it sounds like it's probably doing that for others because I know that you've, you know, been making quite an impact um, through your community on Instagram and the the containers that you mentioned. Um, We can like share these things in our, our show notes as well. But, you know, by giving people a space to be seen and work through their healing, um, that's really, really cool. And I, I guess as we're like wrapping up, maybe we can talk a little bit about how this came to be. Like, did you set out, like, I'm going to share this story to, you know, in the stigma, or I want to help people or just where did it all come from? You know, interestingly enough, um, I had no intention of really anything coming out of this. Um, I essentially was just looking for, I guess, others that just could understand, you know, other women, other humans in general who had lost somebody to addiction, to alcoholism, to mental illness, you know, in some way, somebody who could just say, Hey, I get it. Me too. And I just started honestly on my Instagram, pouring out my heart in different ways, sharing about my grieving process. And it was actually probably about a year ago. I think it was the end of February. I shared a post because there was a lot of, there was a lot of gossip and a lot of things that were going around. And I was like, listen, I just want to get completely honest and share what happened And I shared this post and surprisingly, so many people showed up and like, oh my gosh, me too, me too, me too. Like, wow, you know, what a concept when we can get honest and vulnerable, people can feel the same. And then it just kept going. And because of my past with what I'd done prior to his death, I just felt really called to hold space for people. And I've worked one-on-one 
with women navigating the same that you guys are navigating with a partner who's alive, navigating, you know, the trenches and the life that comes along with it and worked with women navigating grief and all different types. And it's just been really, it's been really healing for me too. And so when I set out, you know, to share about my grieving process, it was simply just for me and to maybe find my hope was to find one other person who could understand. And it's been really beautiful to see it expand and to be able to connect with all these other hearts who just want to feel that connection too. Yeah. Now I always say that I hate that we all find each other because of these things, but that's definitely a silver lining of the hard stuff is the, uh, is the support and the connections that we make through it. So I'm glad that we've met you through this. Yes, I agree so immensely because this, like I said, I find so much healing, which is being able to share because it helps people feel less alone, you know, and it helps us feel seen and not so crazy or not so wounded or hurt or broken or whatever we want to say, because we're none of those things, you know, we might carry those things, but we're whole and we're love and we're all these beautiful things that should be seen. And our people are too, you know, that's what I really am a friend believer. And, you know, Doug's struggle with trauma and addiction and alcoholism and mental illness did not define who he was. And I just don't want it to divine who he was in death either. And so I am a firm believer in sharing those truths as well. Well, you have a beautiful story, you know, and I'm grateful that we have people like you sharing it and being support. Um, and what can, I mean, this is a potential for all of us going through this, you know, addiction is a lifelong disease and it's something that takes constant care and, and work and, yeah, I just am so glad that, um, yes, yeah, Shannon said, it's never nice to meet someone like this, but it, it, it's like when you meet people like in this space, it's like the best because I don't know, you're just like kindred spirits. And I just really appreciate everything you're doing. Would you mind telling us where we, everyone can find you? Of course. So you can find me on Instagram at Julia in visions. Or also my website is just juliawarrenyoga.com. That's where you can find all my offerings. That's where you can connect with me, one-on-one work, group containers, all those things. Awesome. Well, thank you, Julia. I think you are um, honoring Doug's memory in a beautiful way. And thank you for sharing that with us. And to all of those uh, who are listening, thanks for being here and keep coming back. Thanks for spending time with us. We hope this story has helped you better navigate yours. Don't forget to subscribe so we can meet you here next time. If you enjoyed this episode, spread the love by rating or reviewing. Need more support? Join our online community by visiting us at boyproblemspod.com. Whatever you do, keep coming back. We're not licensed professionals. We're here to share our lived experience. So take what resonates and leave what doesn't.